Welcome back to FYI, the four-year institution podcast presented by Mongoose. I'm your host, Gil Rogers. Today, we sit down with Brad Barnett, Director of Financial Aid and Scholarships at James Madison University. Brad is also the past national chair for NASFA. With the release of the new FAFSA recently announced, we thought it would be good to sit down and hear from him how the new changes are going to impact current families and future families considering your institutions. Let's listen in on Brad and his insights. All right, Brad, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. It's good to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining the podcast. Before we hop in, say hello to our guests. Give us a little bit of your background. What's your story? How'd you get here? <laughs> yeah. Hey, guests. It's good to, I guess, for you to listen to us today since I can't see you. Yeah, kind of long sort story. I share it in different venues when, when I move around speaking at different conferences, but I grew up poor and you hear people say, yeah, you grew up poor. Well, I actually lived in a tent for part of my childhood. So I get that whole poverty thing and ended up having a, a parent take his life and through a whole series of sorted circumstances, I was like, I got to get out. I got to move on. I got to figure out a way to, to deal with life. And, and for me, the way to get out was literally to go to college. So going to college got me out, got my family out, and we moved on to a different kind of life that we never otherwise would have had. So that story brought me a passion to move on and I guess do some of the same things that were done for people who helped me. There was a financial aid director at my undergraduate school who literally changed the direction of my life. And lo and behold, 30-something years later, I'm in the same profession doing the same thing that she did. So that's kind of how I got where I was. It's a very condensed version of a much longer story, but I feel this field is a, is a passion. It's a calling. And, you know, it's been nice to give back for a very long time. Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that story. I will say for our podcast listeners and our YouTube viewers, how this episode came about is I had sent out a note to our newsletter subscribers saying, hey, thanks for being a subscriber. Thanks for listening to the podcast. What other topics have I not talked about or talked about with someone recently that we should be covering? And they said, well, the new FAFSA and just financial aid content in general. And by the way, if you're looking for a guest, you should reach out to Brad. And so reached out to Brad. And after a, a big series of back and forth emails, trying to find a time to schedule, we connected. And then all of a sudden, serendipitously, here we are recording the episode. So Brad, I, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to share your thoughts and your expertise because I think we're at an interesting inflection point in higher end. That sounds cliche because I feel like we're always at an interesting inflection point, but specifically when it comes to the rollout of the new FAFSA. And I think that there's uh, a lot of things that families are thinking about and administrators are thinking about. And you have a lot of experience in this area. I'd love for you to share some of your observations around the state of higher ed in general when it comes to the, the new FAFSA and also uh, what it means for students and for administrators. Yeah, it might help to paint a little bit more a picture of kind of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis as far as the lens that I'm looking through. So, uh, so I do work for James Madison University, um, Associate Vice President for Access and Enrollment Management and Director of the Office of Financial Aid and Scholarships. And Throughout my career, I've served on our state board and regional board, and I'm currently the past chair for a national association. So I've seen this through the lens of a financial aid administrator. I've also put two, my wife and I put two children through school. So we've done the whole parent, as well as serving on boards on like looking at higher policy issues and just seeing things from a, a different lens, a higher lens, a wider lens, I should say, than, than just specific to my campus. So yeah, what we're undergoing right now is by far one of the biggest changes we have seen 
I often tell people probably since the Higher Education was Act was signed in 1965 as far as the financial aid world, but definitely some of the biggest changes in the last 40 years. It's going to change the landscape of financial aid. There's no other way to say that. There's no other way to sugarcoat it. When you change the free application for federal student aid and the underlying methodology of that application, it just changes everything. It's like a big domino effect that just moves into other aspects of aid eligibility and can play a role in some of the other things that we're dealing with on our campus regarding recruitment and retention. All those things are going to be impacted by this change. So let's dive in a little bit specifically on the impact with current students. We'll start there, right? I think there's, I've had a lot of conversations with various guests on this podcast, as well as webinars, et cetera, on persistence as a key driver of institutional health. And more importantly, in my opinion, on student success, right? That's that I, I always like to say student success and institutional success are two sides of the same coin, right? If our true north is helping students to get their degree and get either a job or self-fulfillment or whatever their, their goal is, then we, we're doing something right. But there obviously are a lot of challenges in the way of doing that. When we're talking about current students and families specifically, what are some of the things that we need to keep in mind as far as supporting students that might be impacted by some changes? Yeah. So let's talk just a little bit about what the changes are, just to make sure that all the listeners fully understand the, the real big shift here is in 24-25, we have a brand new FAFSA. It doesn't look like a FAFSA we've ever had before. It has new questions on it. Some of the old questions that we've been used to are, are gone. Some of the questions that still stay are redefined and are looked at differently as far as the output of the application. Underneath that FAFSA, there's something called federal methodology. And for years, that methodology has calculated something called an expected family contribution or, or what we have affectionately said is an EFC. So starting in 2425, the EFC goes away. We have now new math. We have a new figure, an output called a student aid index or an SAI. So literally the current FAFSA, the current methodology, just throw it out the window. It's gone, doesn't mean anything anymore. So in 2425, brand new FAFSA, brand new methodology that's going to change the financial need level of many students. So to your question, Gil, about current students, this is one of the populations that I'm most concerned about because these are students who are already at our institutions. These are students who are already accustomed to being funded at a certain level from a financial aid perspective. They made decisions to attend our schools in large part because of the affordability of that institution based on how much aid we gave them. Well, starting next year, nothing has changed in their family life. Nothing has changed in their income in the household. Nothing has changed at all in their life. But we have a new application, new math, new formula that's going to change their financial aid eligibility. Now, for most students, what they're going to see is an increase in financial aid eligibility because this push for a new FAFSA and an SAI actually pushes more students into higher need categories. So then we have to figure out how do we fund more students with higher levels of need on our campus who are already here? And that's really state institutional funding. But there's winners and we're in a climate where not everybody gets a trophy and not everybody gets a ribbon. There's gonna be some students who lose. There's going to be students who actually lose 
their aid eligibility based on this new FAFSA. That's the population that concerns me literally the most is you have a Mm -hmm. student who's been on your campus for two or three years being funded at a certain level of financial need type programs. And then they come back in 24, 25, and maybe they've lost eligibility for all of it. But again, nothing's changed in their family circumstances. So how do we support them as they continue to matriculate at our campus and get them to graduation? That's a big question I'll ask you, right? What are some of the things that you're seeing colleagues talk about and that you're thinking about? Just like, like you said, like it's not the student's fault that the federal methodology changed. And it's not like they worked any less hard in the classroom and are less focused on their goal. This is an outside influencer of theirs that's going to impact them, right? And part of that's life, right? To be like, where we think about it, departments have funding get cut. There are community projects that don't get done because whatever, right? But try to say that to a student who's working to get through school, already scraping by, and now they're doing everything they can. They did everything right. They filled out the forms and now they lose their funding, right? So what's the, and obviously there's no perfect answer, but what are, what are some, some answers potentially that people should be thinking about? Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Gil. It's important for all of us to understand that, look, the students just happen to be enrolled at a very unique time in our history where we're undergoing a fundamental change and they didn't do anything. They just were enrolled at a time when everything flipped over to this new methodology. So what are we doing is a great question. For the past couple of years, we've been talking about this a lot in our industry. NASPA, our national association, created a tool called the, uh, the Student Aid Index tool, so the SAI tool. And in that tool, we can dump a lot of our current FAFSA data in it and come up with some approximation of what our students might look like in this new FAFSA world. It's not gonna be 100% accurate because there is data on the new FAFSA that doesn't even exist right now. So there's elements we can't even pull into the tool. So it's a good tool, it's a robust tool, and it's a place for us to start the conversations on our campus with what might our students look like in this new world. And then from there, Individually on our campuses, we're really having resource conversations. What do we do to continue to support those current students? Every campus has its own set of resources, its own struggles, its own challenges. And we're all really sitting down around the table, looking across from our counterparts at our university saying, okay, this is where we think we're going to be. How can we support these students who just so happen to be enrolled at this unique time in our history? With that, I I do want to preface and just make sure everybody understands. There's going to be far more students who are positively impacted by this. The nature of all the changes will create more aid eligibility for students. It will push more people into Pell Grant range than we've ever seen before. So it's not like we're going to have an overwhelming number of losers, again, for lack of a better term, but there will be some. And I think it behooves us to pay attention to that population. So we're all analyzing our data and we're looking at our resources to see how we can support these students and get them through to graduation. Yeah, I'd love to like talk about the institutions for a second. And the positive impact on the student is that they're eligible for more, but now institutions are going to have to try to meet more, right? And offer more in a world where like resources are not unlimited. The student might be eligible for more, but if the institution can't afford to give more, what does that look like? Yeah, and that's one of our big challenges right now because we have years and years of modeling and data 
and analysis that helped us get to where we are today with our institutional packaging policies. At the risk of sounding grandiose, all that doesn't mean anything anymore because mm-hmm. now we have a brand new FASPA with brand new math and brand new methodology. So you really can't rely on your analysis from the past to help you predict what you're going to do in the future now. We're starting over. So you're kind of throwing it out and you're starting over. So those are questions that we are all going to have to answer institutionally once we legitimately see what our FASPAs look like. Right now, we have some approximations of what may happen based on using things like the SAI tool, but it's using old FASPAs. We're making the best assumptions we can when setting our packaging policies for next year based on the best data we have, but we're all going to need to be a little nimble and a little flexible and a little adaptable once we actually see those applications start hitting our school and our campuses. And then we have real data and then we're going to have to react as best we can. And you're right, we all have very different levels of resources. Yeah. And I think the spirit of full disclosure for our podcast listeners outside of this podcast, I do some consulting work with a company called HAI Analytics, and they are a financial aid and modeling company. And I think one of the things that you think about from, you know, there are people that work with large firms that have financial aid optimization strategies and and budgeting and platforms. Some do it in-house, some work with a smaller boutique firm. Everyone has to evolve and change at this point. So that's going to be a matter of how quickly can you adapt and evolve because I think that there's a lot that has to be thought about in this process that, like you said, you can use your five years of historical data all you want, but when half the data is no longer being used and the other half is not data that you had before, it's not going to help, right? So I think it's a tricky situation to be in that's going to take leadership and it's going to take some just good decision-making. We were talking before we started recording the podcast, there's a lot of smart people in higher education. So hopefully a lot of these smart people are making good decisions, right? Yeah. And I think that's part of it is, right, they all have to get around the table. This isn't just a financial aid issue and it doesn't happen in a silo. So what we've been encouraging our financial aid counterparts across the country to do is make sure you're sitting across the table from your finance folks, from your business office, that your president or your chancellor and your senior leadership know what's going on. In some cases, your board of visitors. But as long as you're having open communications and conversations across campus, then hopefully you'll be prepared and be able to maneuver as you need to maneuver once we start getting these applications. Because again, this just doesn't impact the financial aid office. This is a campus-wide implications. So get everyone around the table, figure it out, get your plan A ready. And then after you have plan A ready, you might as well start working on plan B, C, and D. Um, Because Mm -hmm. it's a little bumpy. We we need to be nimble to be able to move on and help our students. Yeah, and very few things impact one office in a silo anymore. So I think that's sound advice to bring together a coalition on your campus to really make this happen. Thoughtfully nurture applicants, personalize retention efforts, and exceed fundraising goals with our Cadence Engagement Platform's text messaging solutions. Designed exclusively for higher ed by higher ed professionals, Cadence helps you engage your audiences with the perfect balance of AI and personal connection. We leverage an intuitively designed interface and easy-to-use texting templates so you can have targeted conversations or scale up to expand your reach. Our powerful smart messaging can respond automatically, exactly how you would. And to measure progress, track your campaigns with unparalleled reports and analytics. 
Effectively meet your community where they are as we proudly feature an industry-leading 95% read rate within three minutes. It's never been easier to make every message count. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about future students, right? A lot of the folks that listen to this podcast are in admissions and role and management related roles. And so while they definitely have an eye on current students and retention and persistence, their feet are held to the fire on that new student recruitment number every year, right? And so in some respects, I know when we spoke earlier, this is just the way it's done for perspectives in some respects, but what are some things that institutions should be thinking about and maybe families might need to know about if they're just going through this process for the first time? Yeah, it, it is very different when we look at it through a current student lens or a prospective student lens. The prospective student lens is basically what you said. This is all they know. Unless it's a parent who may have a child in college right now and it's a sibling going to school, then there's going to be a little difference for them. But for most of them, first time out, fill out your FAFSA. This is the only FAFSA you know. Now, what does that mean for them and what does that mean for us? This change, this FAFSA simplification change, um, as it's called and the legis- some of the legislation was passed, it will be a simpler FAFSA once parents and students get into it. Once they get into the application, it should be a much easier application to complete. The other nice part of this and part of what simplifies it on their end is it will help provide a lot more predictability on what aid eligibility can be from year to year based on some of the changes in the underlying formula and how Pell Grants are calculated. By and large, when it comes to Pell Grants, we'll really be relying mostly on AGI, family size, and poverty tables. That's something that's used for other federal need-based programs, and now it's being used for the federal need-based program of the Pell Grant. So when you start moving to methodology like that, when you remove from the methodology something like how many siblings are enrolled in college, to help determine your financial need level so that will no longer impact that in 24-25, then that also helps provide just a lot better level of predictability. So when a student picks a school, assuming their family income is roughly the same from year to year, their aid eligibility will probably be the same from year to year. Something as arbitrary as a sibling being enrolled in college at the same time, impacting your financial aid eligibility will no longer be part of the formula. And in the past, that has really created some consternations for some students who had a bunch of need-based aid because they had a sibling in school, and then all of a sudden their sibling graduates or decides not to come back. And then the next year in the EFC model, the student loses all their aid eligibility by no fault of their own, just simply because of a choice or something that happened to their sibling. So I think moving forward for prospective students, as well as for our campuses, this will give us all a much better level of that predictable nature of where a student's need level may be, which might actually help with a lot of our modeling and should help students when they pick a school, knowing that they can probably afford that school for their school career, uh, assuming they picked a, an affordable one in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's, a, yeah. that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. So whole, whole separate podcast. A whole separate podcast. I, re- I reserve the right somewhere you can afford to go. <laughs> yeah. Grow your student community. Help them stay. And encourage giving with Cadence, Higher Ed's premier engagement platform from Mongoose. Designed exclusively for higher ed by higher ed professionals, Cadence helps you engage your audiences with the perfect balance of AI and personal connection. Talk to students, parents, and alumni on their time and how they want. 
Empower your staff with integrated text and chat inboxes that gather all conversations in one place. Reach out to learn more about how our best-in-class service, support, and integrations have helped colleges and universities like yours have smarter conversations. From text to chat, make every message count. So take out your crystal ball for a minute, look ahead five years. What is it? That would be ideally a perfect world scenario. The students who are being impacted by this change will have, let's paint a rosy picture. They've all graduated and gone on to their careers. And so they've moved out through the process. What does this mean long-term for students in schools with the level of visibility, level of access. You've already mentioned more students being eligible for certain programs. So health of institutions, I'll let you take it from there. What does five years from now look like? Yeah, first, I hope what you said comes true. If there's any current student who's still enrolled five years down the road, then they've got other problems more than just just financial aid (laughs) eligibility. So they should be gone. So we should just have the new group of students who this is the only FAFSA they know. You know, some things that excite me go back to what we talked about before. I I really appreciate that with the results of this, we're going to be able to do better predictive modeling, I think, on what sort of resources we need to support students. I think as we develop programs and need-based scholarships, need-based grant programs, we'll have much more certainty of what our expenditures may be from year to year based on some of the changes from the ESC formula to the SAI formula. So on an institution side, I think that helps a lot. And that helps more than just the financial aid office. It helps more than just the finance office. It helps more than just the business office. It moves down into other parts of campus where students may be involved in or living in with some reassurance of students being able to afford to return like housing or meal plans or some of the student groups and activities. Even some of the majors, as they're looking at, do we have attrition rate of majors or minor programs? So I think we'll be able to remove some of the financial mystery. Not all of it, not all of it, but I think we'll be able to remove a lot of it. Then from this, the student and the family's perspective, it's the same thing. If they made a wise decision on selecting a school they could afford, and then if their family income stays relatively the same throughout that entire college career, then their aid eligibility should also be relatively the same. We shouldn't see big major swings as we see in an EFC world. So five years from now, what I'm hoping is for a level of a bit more stability on both sides of the equation, which then means we're just in a better position to plan and serve students who want to come to our schools. That's great. And hopefully that's what comes to pass. And I think that the next question then is around, and we've mentioned modeling, we've mentioned better, more reliable data. Are there advancements in technology that might help with this sort of thing? Are there resources that have you know yet to be built yet? We're in the process of being built that you can see institutions leveraging to be in a better position to actually take advantage of the data and not be as reactive, but be more proactive with pricing strategies, new program introductions, whatever it is, right? Like I think there's opportunity there that might presumably be untapped. Sure. I can tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to ask chat GPT to create my financial aid modeling strategy. <laughs> so I think we can throw that one out. But how much will something like AI be a part of what we do in five, six or seven years? I don't know. On my campus, we're actually looking to create 
right now a committee or a task force that just focuses on looking at AI and what would that look like in the future of higher education or the future of our campus? And how would we incorporate it? So what technologies exist? I think in the, in the immediate, you're going to be using some of the same technologies that you have right now. You're just going to be inputting different data, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some modeling tools, some of the strategies, some of the, the companies, the, the consulting companies who help do it, some of the internal ones that we've built, they work. Uh, but we've been using data that is old. So I think you just change and you just put new data inputs into it. And then as it grows, then we'll be able to see if there's a better way we can utilize certain technologies to streamline it even more. And I think there will be some opportunities just because I think the data is going to be more simple. Most of the income information is coming straight from the IRS. That was one of the real big changes Mm-hmm. of FAFSA simplification. That actually goes back to the Future Act that was passed in 2019, which then got bundled as part of this FAFSA simplification process in the Consolidation Appropriations Act in 2021. Now we have the Future Act implemented. So when you have the reliance of tax data, when you have a simplified application, when you have fewer data fields that can cause aid eligibility to swing so drastically from year to year, I think we'll adapt the tools and the technology we have to better use that and hopefully simplify it. I don't have a crystal ball, but that's what I'm hoping for. I see a lot of positives that can come out of this. And the more simple this is or the simpler it is, then the faster we're going to be able to develop plans to serve students who want to come to our schools. And in the end, that's really what it's about. Yeah. So I, I think in general, to sum it up, as with any change, there are going to be some positives and there's going to be some negatives. I think the it feels like the potential for more positives than negatives. And I think the pressure is on institutions to have a plan to triage the negatively impacted students as much as possible. Because I think that obviously our our true North should be supporting their persistence and success. And if it's a short-term pinch to impact a subset of our population, we do owe it to them to do what we can to support them through this process. But also in the long term, ideally, that's, again, a, a process that is only done this one time. And now moving forward, we've got better data, better resources in place that ideally supports students more broadly a- across the board. Right. And so I'm looking forward to watching this unfold with you. <laughs> yeah, I, boy, we are, too. It's funny. I told somebody the other day, I said, is it bad that I'm already looking forward to the 25, 26 school year? which is a year after this gets implemented, just so we can just have a year under our belt and then move on. It's just this transition year. This transition year is creating a little stress, a little consternation. There's still a lot of unknowns. We still don't have all the answers we need from the Department of Education. And this FAFSA is going to be live before January 1. So this transition year is what's creating this kind of fog out there and a little bit of the nervousness. But When we start getting down the path in two to three years, we're going to look back on this and we'll say, we did it, we got through, and now we're just in a new phase of what this looks like. And then we just move forward. So I fully believe that in the long run, this will be easier and better. We just got to get through the next year or two, and it could be a little bumpy. Brad, I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to to join us and share your insights and your thoughts. I will defer to you to, to share what are the best ways to get in touch with you if people want to get in contact and pick your brain or provide you with some feedback. Yeah, that's great. The easiest way to get in touch with me because I'm in and out of the office quite a bit is just through email is probably the best way. 
You can hit me up on LinkedIn if you want as well, or you can go to the JMU Financial Aid Office website and you'll find my email right there. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Brad, thank you again for being a part of the podcast. And we will see everyone next time on FYI. Thanks, Gil. See you. Thank you.